G'day mate, welcome to episode 57 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this week's episode, we are talking all things Zone 4. And then we dig into the Harden Up project, where we're looking at the incredible story of touching the void and Joe Simpson's survival in the Peruvian Andes. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. Alrighty, mate. Welcome along to another episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast. This week, we're into episode 57. Nick Taylor, how you doing, mate? I am good, thank you, despite the, the nasally tones that I'm exp- uh, displaying this week. A bit of a husky voice on the end of the line. Yes, a bit of a husky voice. It's uh, anniversary day here in Dunedin, so I've had a day off work, so I'm nice and relaxed, but had a pretty big weekend with a a, a ride called the Dirty Danza, uh, which was a 160k or 100-mile gravel ride. Uh, now, this was in Naseby, um, a small town outside of Otago or outside of Dunedin, um, and it was 90k's, a relatively flat, riding um, which we ticked off in about three and a half hours so pretty quick um, and then into a, um, a sort of a mountainish type pass called the Danzies Pass which was an epic climb um, followed by a pretty epic sort of bone rattling descent uh, and then almost turn around and come straight back up and straight back down the other side um, run by um, a couple here in Dunedin uh, so it was good fun a lot of fun uh, but took about seven and a half hours and has left me with a wee bit of a, a nasally cough or cold. Nice. And you did that on your cyclocross bike? I did. So I think at some point we're going to have to get get someone on to talk about gravel biking because it is a bit mm. of a different sort of area now. Um, but, I, yeah, essentially I did it on a cyclocross bike. There were guys there on gravel bikes, and then there were guys there, or guys and girls, I should say, on mountain bikes. Uh, so it was a combination of everything, which worked really well. And awesome uh, part of the country out there, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. Um, you know, you're in some sort of gold mining history up the back there. Um, and it was a beautiful day, warm but not hot. Uh, there's rivers, uh, lots of gravel, and lots of roads. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I, uh, my my latest experience at Danzy's Pass, or... We always go over Danzy's Pass at the end of the Great Southern Rivet, heading back towards Tekapo. So the first time I ever went over there, got to the top, and uh, it was like complete whiteout, just fog. You could see about two road markers ahead of you. So I was cruising down there in the dark and came across this this bridge, and you probably saw it. There's a couple of like uh, big wooden areas where your tyre tracks go in a car. And yeah. in the middle of them and on the sides of them, they're sort of like negative detail. So I came flying down this hill onto this bridge in the center between the two tracks <laughs> and sort of around a corner and just started pushing up and rubbing against the raised bit and just completely stacked it. So about two o'clock in the morning, slammed into the ground and um, smashed my knee up something chronic, eh? And I was just like, pulled myself up off the ground, sort of not really knowing what had happened. And, like, wind completely knocked out of me, completely by myself, you know, in the middle of nowhere, thinking, oh, man, this is not good. Managed to bike the next, I think it's about 60-odd Ks or something, to Kura, 
where I slept the night. In the morning, my knee was just blowing up like a balloon. Could have hardly bend it and still had 100-odd Ks to go to Tekapo. So yeah. Danzig's Pass is not my favourite place. And then <laughs> the last time I went through there in January this year, about 2 o'clock in the morning, coming down the other side, always had it at these obscure hours of the day, I was like falling asleep and uh, I still had like a couple of, like about an hour I think on my ride schedule to ride to to a point to sleep, but I was just so tired, I just parked on the side of the road and literally just slept like right next to the road uh, on this little on this little ledge bit overlooking the river on coming down the other side and um, yeah, Danzy's Pass has always kicked my ass. <laughs> yeah. A oh, slightly different experience for us by the time we climbed to the top. Um, the guys who had organised it had a, a chilli bag full of cold water and coke. Um, oh, we rode another 15Ks down to kind of the top of another wee pinch, some more cold water, and then back up uh, with some more cold water and coke. So it was it was perfect, actually. Mate, uh, just living the dream. It was. Despite the fact I would have preferred to have my mountain bike for going down uh, a gravel road with a lot of corrugations. Um, oh, yeah. You know, my, my triceps have never been so sore just from that kind of... <laughs> as you go, you know, you, you, if you feel like your hands are about to come off the bike and you're going to just fly off the side of the, the, the cliff. So it's a fantastic place. Um, but gravel riding itself, I think it's... I was hooked on cyclocross last year from from entering some of the cyclocross races, and I'm, I'm certainly hooked on gravel riding now. Uh, it's a great day out. Nice, yeah, 120, 125Ks at the Contact Epic in a couple of weeks will be nothing compared to the 160. I hope so, I hope so, because, you know, I was a little bit beaten up after the 160, so hopefully the 170. Hopefully I'm about an hour and a half quicker too. That would that would help yeah, awesome. the day's play. It won't be as sunburned um, or, or as hazy <laughs> afterwards, hopefully. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So today we are going to kick into the second to last episode of our training heart rate zone um, series that we've been doing, and then we're going to crack into the Harden Up project. So today we are tackling zone four. Zone four. Nick, take us away. Cool. So... Zone four is, is, I guess, commonly referred to as a sub-threshold if you're looking at your training peak zone. So that basically means your percentages are about 94% up to 99% of your lactate threshold. So we're not quite working at the point where we're fully accumulating lactate with essentially no oxygen um, being consumed. Um, but we are working as hard as we can almost go. Often you might think or hear people talking about, oh, I redlined on that ride, um, especially around like a, a sort of a club cycling race um, or a, uh, even like a cross-country kind of run um, that might take 15, 20 minutes, um, even up to an hour. Um, you can really kind of redline at your top of your zone four or your threshold. So in this sort of threshold, we are accumulating lactate quite quickly. Um, and now the closer you get to 100%, uh, basically we're accumulating it quicker than we can process it. So we're starting to, to work without aerobic, uh, without, sorry, yeah, without aerobic or oxygen um, in terms of our metabolism. Now what that does is it sends our lactic uh, accumulation through the roof. Um, and as Maddie would tell us a few weeks ago, those hydrogen ions that are floating around, they're the ones that are causing the trouble. They're going to start to make our muscles burn um, we're going to start to be like, right, okay, I need to back off 
or I'm about to blow up. Um, and the old analogy with, with burning matches um, is, is a really great one for this in terms of every time you're spending, you know, five, ten minutes in zone four, you're taking off another match. Um, and it's just a, a matter of time before you run out of matches and you're, you're out there, out the backside um, and unable to, to kind of keep pushing hard, so to speak. So it's an interesting area, I guess, the zone four, because often we find that people will, will push quite, you know, quite comfortably at zone two in their training. They'll push into zone three on a, on a climb, and then it's straight into zone five. They, they're kind of either pushing full on maximally mm. or they're just kind of tucked underneath. They don't quite get into that zone four because it doesn't feel comfortable for that long. But it's a, an area where if you can spend some time training in zone four, then you can really improve your ability to clear that lactate at a, at a given speed so you can ride faster or you can run quicker or kayak faster. Um, so therefore, your, your heart rate zone is such, if, if 170, say, is your lactic threshold, that doesn't often change too much. You're never going to get it to 180. You might get it to 172, but not, well, not 180. So you just improve the ability to clear lactate on that. So you can go faster, you can go, go stronger and go for longer at that period of time. Um, so it's a really important zone to kind of train within, um, but it's often one that is, is kind of mis, um, mistrained in or, or not quite trained appropriately for, for the benefits you can get out of it. It's a wee bit like we talked about zone three last weekend can be a little bit of a, a junk training area um, it's, and you can kind of waste your time in there. If you could just push that a little bit harder up into zone four, you're going to get a greater benefit. Um, the tax on the body is not too much more and so therefore you're going to get a, a better um, training stimulus out the other side. Would you like to add anything to that so far? I think thinking back to our energy systems, since I'm the, uh, seem to be the <laughs> energy systems guy, is, um, and, and I maybe didn't quite explain it very well last week, but in zone three, our aerobic energy system is running really well, and we're starting to get some anaerobic um, glycolytic action happening where it's not able to drop down into that aerobic energy system. So we're starting to get some lactate produced or lactic acid. Uh, and the difference between lactate and lactic acid is, I guess it's a good thing to cover while we're talking about it, but lactic acid only exists in the muscle or in the cell for a very short period of time. So it come, it's produced and then almost immediately it dissociates into a lactate and a hydrogen ion. So when we're measuring the blood, we're measuring lactate in the blood, we're not actually measuring lactic acid because the lactate and the hydrogen ion are no longer connected to each other. So it's no longer lactic acid, it's just lactate, if that makes sense. Essentially, it's the same thing, for want of a better word, but um, not quite the same thing. So you're starting to get some of this lactate produced. Um, but your aerobic energy system is still taking care of most of it. When you step up to zone four, uh, that's when this this anaerobic glycolytic system is starting to really kick into gear because you're asking your body to produce more energy than it can do aerobically to meet the demands of whatever you're doing. So that anaerobic glycolytic system really cranks up. A lot more lactate, a lot more hydrogen ions are, are produced. And so 
training in this zone is, is a really sensitive zone for to de- to develop that uh, area that we're looking at developing. Yeah. So I guess from a, a how do we train the zone? Um, like I said, it is it is a sensitive zone. So in terms of being, oh, there's there's I guess two approaches to to anything general. You can be quite general, or you can be quite specific. Um, now Maddie's probably a bit more of a a general zone fan versus me in terms of being quite specific with with intervals. Um, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. At times. At times. Yeah. At, yeah. Yeah, Maddie probably spends more time training people outside of their kind of peak race time. So I tend to get a lot of athletes come to me and they're, mm. they're wanting to get stuff done in the next 12 to 16 weeks as opposed to spending time during their base training, uh, which I guess helps with, with being quite specific from my end. Um, mm. So in terms of intervals, I you know I tend to go in that 10 to 20 minute block and you are working in you know zone four. The closer you can be to the, the top of that zone, the, the better, but you don't want to switch over into zone five um, so you know you want to have your gun pole or whatever it is set to basically almost telling you the number of zone that you're in um, i know a lot of units now can sort of say okay you're zone 4.3 or 4.4 um, you want to kind of sit that 4.8 4.9 but not five um, and that will help with reducing the the amount of anaerobic work you're doing versus um, high level aerobic um, and that kind of 10 to 20 minute period with with you know five minutes also, I've rest. Um, I've been reading a wee bit in terms of recovery time from these intervals, and it, it tends to be once you get to a certain period of time, you don't get any greater benefit by going maybe five to ten minutes in that rest period. At five minutes, okay, you, you're fully recovered, right, go again. Um, and that way you kind of get a bit of a, an accumulation of lactate um, still happening, as well as the clearance through the recovery stage as well. Um, I do find it, though, a lot of people will struggle on a flat road to get up to zone mm. four, especially on a bike. Um, running's always a wee bit easier because you've got a, a greater resistance um, and a greater load from the, I guess, gravity effect. Um, but on a bike, on a flat road, it can be really hard to push a gear that quickly unless you're into a headwind. Um, so they work really well as, as hill intervals or, or finding some sort of undulation where you can really kind of grind it up um, on a hill to get your heart rate going as well. Um, I'd also suggest never jumping straight in from like a, a you know, if you warm up, let's say it was 10 minutes in zone one, don't go from 10 minutes in zone one to trying to do three or four minutes in zone four. Um, you want to kind of give yourself a couple of little accelerations in your warm up, um, get your heart rate up, bring it down, up, down, up, down, and then launch into some, some longer sort of five, 10, 15 minute intervals in that zone four kind of range as well. Nice. Yeah, so I guess the um like like Nick was saying, uh, not necessarily that I prefer an unstructured approach or general general training, but what we talked about beforehand was I'll often use what I call an unstructured interval session where I find them really good in late base phase, uh early speed phase when we're transitioning into more structured work. But when potentially in the speed phase, closer to your event, the duration and the specificity of your training spent in different zones is, becomes more important. So what I find is it can be really useful for, for a two, three-week period is doing what I call unstructured intervals, where you might go out uh, and run uh, a hilly course that you might know, and you might just go and run the hills hard rather than going out and doing a specific interval length 
Uh, if you run the hills hard and then recover on the downhill, you're, you're getting a similar effect, but without being locked into that specific training zone, which some athletes can find quite taxing um, mentally and, and also physically to some degree as well. And so if you have a, a, a period of that type of training, then when it comes to your specific uh, time when it's really important to you know accumulate that different time in those zones or in zone four specifically then you're a little bit more fresh and able to do that as well as having the, that adaptation already starting to occur yeah totally yeah uh, so I mean it, it's different tools for the job and I wouldn't use that sort of unstructured uh, training you know four weeks out from your race when you really want to be targeting that threshold but you know, if it's uh, a little bit further out and you're just transitioning from that general base phase into some more specific threshold work, then it can be a, a useful tool. And again, if you're if you're completely untrained and you want to boost your anaerobic threshold, you just need to go out and, and, and run or ride up some hills and, and that'll almost do it for you, you know? Yeah. And... Make you know, make sure you're aware that zone four training is, as Matty said, it, it, it's a huge tax on the system. Uh, you know, you're not likely to spend more than an hour in any in any given session in zone four, accumulative. Uh, so if you went out and tried to ride or run in zone four for an hour, it's going to suck and it's going to be hard. And most people can't do it unless you're in a race situation. Um, oh yeah, you're going to be destroyed and, for a couple of days afterwards if you do that. Yeah. Um, so you need to make sure that when you are in these periods of specific zone four training that you allow a couple of days of recovery out the other side. So you need a couple of days mm -hmm. of easy, um, even a, just a longer zone one, zone two session is okay. Um, but if you don't allow that recovery, you, you're going to end up either overtrained, sick, um, or run down pretty quick. Mm -hmm. yeah. in, in terms of it being a sensitive training zone as well, if you're either new to training in terms of new to endurance training, or you've spent quite a few years doing your own self-guided training, and it's consisted primarily of just going out and riding or running to how you feel, then doing some specific work in zone four can get you a lot of benefits because your body's not used to it. A lot of people, when they go out uh, for their long rides or long runs, long sessions, they'll naturally fall into that zone two uh, or zone three because, as we talked about last week, that feels kind of strong, that zone three. Not often will you venture up into zone four for any extended amount of time apart from potentially riding up a really steep hard hill or, or, or attacking something on, on a run. So by structuring some specific time in zone four, you get some massive benefits relatively, I'm not going to say easy, but relatively quickly, uh, but definitely not easy. Yeah, totally. And, and zone four, or I guess, again, your threshold heart rate is a really cool uh, pacing, I guess, a, a structure in a race setting. Mm -hmm. um, again, the, the, the moment, and it's not quite as clear cut as, bang, one minute you're anaerobic, next minute you're aerobic. Um, but at the moment you step across that threshold heart rate, you're, you're working anaerobically, um, for want of a better, better way to put it. And in a race setting, if you can keep yourself under that threshold um, and even go a few beats below just to allow for some, some sort of error, I guess, in, in testing, um, then you can be really 
kind of keeping yourself in check across a longer race. Um, short rate, you know, half an hour to an hour race. Um, you just want to be redlining the whole way. Um, but an Ironman sort of race is a great example in terms of keeping your heart rate down, especially on the, the bike. I mean, the swim, you've got no control over it generally because you can't monitor your heart rate as well. Um, but keeping your heart rate down, especially through transition on the bike, um, and then again, another transition, then you're going to have a much better run if you can kind of peg it back. Um, mm, about that 10% below threshold heart rate is a really good pacing area for those long events, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good rule of thumb, actually, 10%. Mm. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is depending on the type of race that you're doing, the type of intervals that you do for zone four uh, can be quite different or uh, way to optimize them. So if you're, say, training for an Ironman and it's going to be a long, you know, TT type type event, then or the, the likes of, a, you know, a 100-mile gravel event where the, it's quite a sustained effort. So doing those sustained efforts in zone four, really important, you know, from that sort of 10 to 20-minute window. If you're training for an, an event not necessarily shorter in duration, but potentially where the bursts of zone four work that you're going to be doing are a bit shorter. So looking at, say, intervals down even as low as, say, four minutes, four to ten minutes, say, like, if it's a road race or a mountain bike race where there's a few pinches, um, or definitely, you know, around, like, a 10K um, running event where you're going to be coming up into zone four or up and then back down a bit, up and back down. So you're visiting the accumulative time that you spend there over the session is potentially going to be the same. So rather than doing, say, three 10-minute intervals, you you go back and you, say, do five, you know, sort of four-minute intervals. But your accumulative time, and I know you're rolling my eyes saying that doesn't add up in terms of maths, but generally the uh, the accumulative time is still still the same. But the way your body is having to turn on the gas, if you like, and then recover from it, turn on and recover is is a lot different between those two events mm. and that's where you can get someone who's a really good time trialist but then chuck them in a road race and their legs blow out because they're not used to that surging uh, even though they're able to generate a lot of sustained power when they've got to turn it off turn it on turn it off turn it on they start to struggle a little bit yep totally and that's i guess one of the fundamental sort of uh, areas of, of training plan uh, preparation is specificity mm. so so the closer you get to your race time the you want to be as specific to the demands of that event uh, you know cross-country mountain bike race is probably a prime example um, it's such a high demand um, sport and the course will dictate that completely um, again same with with triathlons uh, running races etc the, the course will dictate a lot um, yep. and you can go into a a flat half marathon, let's say the Christchurch half marathon running, um, and then you can find a really hilly half marathon. Um, you know, Dunedin's got a wee hill in it. Um, I can't pick a decent hill half marathon off the top of my head, but there will be one out there. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely have a, a big look at what event you're training for uh, and then the demands of it and then how you might adjust your sort of threshold-type training for that Um and another question I get asked a lot is around about why would 
an endurance athlete who has to go and train or race uh, for a long period of time aerobically, why would they want to improve their anaerobic threshold? So I think a lot of people get the word anaerobic in their head and they think, oh, uh, I'm doing aerobic endurance exercise. And the, the key thing to think about is that when you go out and race, you race at a percentage of your anaerobic threshold normally. So say for a race, you race at, you're able to sustain 80% of your anaerobic threshold for the entire duration. And there's two people that sustain that 80% of their threshold for the same race. Now the person with the higher threshold is going to have a faster time because their threshold was higher, so their overall race intensity is higher than the other person's. So even though we're talking about anaerobic energy production, it's actually also related to that aerobic capacity as well. So because we're racing at a percentage of our anaerobic threshold, the higher that anaerobic threshold is, the higher any given percentage of it is going to be on race day. And that's where it becomes really important for endurance athletes. Yep. And and as people will, will hear next week, um, as we step into zone five, which is your maximal anaerobic um, zone, they are some of the best types of intervals to be doing to increase your aerobic capacity. Mm. Um, and like you said, it's it's a very confusing sort of terminology between aerobic and anaerobic because people just assume that uh, aerobics, okay, well, that's what I'm doing. I don't want to touch the anaerobic system um, because that's just for sprint athletes. Yep. Um, so it's, it's a really cool, cool kind of, I guess, myth to be dispelling, I guess, at the same time. It is a, it's a complicated uh, subject, so hopefully everyone's starting to get a bit of a grasp on it now. Um, and if you don't, let us know if we've made it more confusing for you. Hopefully we haven't, and um, we can do our best to rectify that. Mm. Anything else to add for Zone 4, Nick? Uh, no, other than the, just kind of stress the point of some sort of monitoring system as to the amount of time you're spending in that zone from a training mm-hmm. point of view. Um, yep. You know, if you're doing two interval sessions a week, uh, whether it be zone four, zone five, or whatever the the, thresh, uh, the intensity, then that's it. You know, on your weekend rides, you are zone two, zone three max. Um, yep. You know, you need a couple of zone ones in there as well. So you just want to monitor your intensity the best you can. Um, and there are so many tools out there um, through Training Peaks, um, Garmin, Strava. I'm sure Paul will have their own one. Um, mm-hmm. and HRV as well um, in terms of keeping an idea of your recovery from these in, uh, interval sessions. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's a awesome. trap I think triathletes fall into quite heavily because they've got three disciplines to, or main multi-sport would be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, okay, I've got to do heaps of intervals in the pool, I've got to do heaps of intervals running and biking to get faster, but I've got to fit in my long ride my, and they just end up sort of overloading their training systems too much. Yeah, for sure. No, it's yeah. a very good point. With that, uh, that higher intensity, the um, the recovery becomes really, you know, much more important. Mm. You know, like the uh, the saying, the harder you push your body, the harder your body pushes back. Mm. So, um, if you if you're training hard, then you need to recover hard as well and give the body the time it needs um, to to soak up the training. Because remember, the training's just the stress that you're putting on the body. It's not actually getting better from the training. It's when it recovers from it and adapts to it is when it gets better. And if you don't 
let the body have that time to adapt, well, then it just simply does not get better. All righty, zone four, that's a wrap. And we're going to move now into the Harden Up project for this week. We've got another uh, story, another tale of um, pushing the body to the absolute limit in extremely adverse conditions. And this book that we're going to cover this week is a book called Touching the Void. You may have heard of it. Um, it was turned into like a bit of a movie documentary um, a few years ago now. It's awesome. It's on YouTube. I'll put a link to it over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 57 for episode 57 under the show notes. Um, I first read this book when I was at high school, actually, which is a long time ago. Uh, I was really into rock climbing at the time. Um, like really into it and um, was starting to dabble in a little bit of alpine climbing and um, get out and climbing in the snow and building snow caves and sleeping in the hills and, and the likes of that. Um, nothing to the point that this book is, but I was uh, fizzing on it back then, so I, I somehow picked up this book in the school library and read it, and it absolutely blew my mind on a number of levels. But the one that it stuck with me the most was the lengths that the human body can go to, um, not just the human body, but the human mind as well. If you break things down and focus on one step at a time, move towards those goals and, um, and yeah, and just single minded focus. Anyway, here are some bits of the book um, that I'm going to read out to give you a bit of an overview of the story. Remember, I'm not reading all of it, and I would highly recommend that um, you check out the full story or check out the uh, that wee movie doco. And there's also a really cool little behind-the-scenes making of the documentary. And they actually went back, like the documentary that they made is in the exact same spot everything happened. They went back to the Andes uh, in Peru, took a whole bunch of people back there, set up the tents in the same place, climbed the same, well, didn't, didn't climb all the way to the top, some of the lower slopes and got all the shots they were after, took the two guys who were actually part of the story back there and, um, and did it all. So the little documentary is super um, accurate, I guess you could say. So here it is, Touching the Void. I hit the slope at the base of the cliff before I saw it coming. I was facing into the slope and both knees locked as I struck it. I felt a shattering blow in my knee, felt bones splintering and screamed. The impact catapulted me over backwards and down the slope of the east face. I slid head first on my back. The rushing speed of it confused me. I thought of the drop below but felt nothing. Simon would be ripped off the mountain. He couldn't hold this. I screamed again as I jerked to a sudden violent stop. Everything was silent. My thoughts raced madly. Then pain flooded down my thigh, the fierce burning fire coming down the inside of my thigh, seeming to ball in my groin, building and building until I cried out. It's my leg. Oh, Jesus, my leg. I hung, head down, on my back, left leg tangled in the rope above me, and my right leg hanging slackly to one side. 
I lifted my head from the snow and stared up at the grotesque distortion in my right knee. I kicked my left leg free of the rope and swung around until I was hanging against the snow, feet down. The pain eased. I kicked my left foot into the slope and stood up. A wave of nausea surged over me. I pressed my face into the snow and the sharp cold seemed to calm me. Something terrible, something dark with dread occurred to me. And as I thought about it, I felt the dark thought breaking into panic. I've broken my leg. That's it. I'm dead. Everybody said it. If there's just two of you, a broken ankle could turn into a death sentence. If it's broken. If. It doesn't hurt too much. Maybe I've just ripped something. I kicked my right leg against the slope, feeling sure it wasn't broken. My knee exploded, bone grated, and the fireball rushed from my groin to my knee. I screamed. I looked down at the knee, and I could see it was broken. Yet, I tried not to believe what I was seeing. It wasn't just broken, it was ruptured, twisted, crushed, and I could see the kink in the joint, and I knew what had happened. The impact had driven my lower leg through my knee joint. I moved my knee gingerly, experimenting with it. I tried to bend it and stopped immediately, gasping at the rush of pain. When it moved, I felt a grinding crunch. At least it wasn't an open fracture. I knew this as soon as I tried to move. I could feel no wetness, no blood. I dug my axes into the snow and pounded my good leg deeply into the soft slope until I felt sure I wouldn't slip. The effort brought back the nausea and I felt my head spin to the point of fainting. I looked out. The sight drove home how desperate things had changed. We were above 19,000 feet, still on the ridge, and very much alone. Simon would not be able to get me up it. He would have to leave me. He had no choice. I held my breath, thinking about it. Left here, alone. I felt cold at the thought. So, here we are. This is the day that changed Joe Simpson and Simon Yates' life forever. They've been climbing this mountain, Sula Grande, in the Peruvian Andes. The west face that they have just climbed has never, ever been climbed before. People have tried, but they've, they've failed. It's an absolutely rugged mountain range. They, they successfully make it to the summit up this new route, and then they're on their way down. As you just heard, Joe Simpson has just fallen and broken his leg. And essentially, if you break your leg in these sort of environments, it's game over for you. And as you can hear, he thinks he's just going to be left there because there's no way for his climbing partner, Simon Yates, to get him down. However, things go their way for a little while. His climbing partner, Simon, starts lowering him down with this broken leg. And you can imagine the descriptions in the book are brutal about how he's lowering him down and his leg keeps snagging. And it just sounds absolutely awful. They're making, they make pretty good progress down. 
But as night falls and the weather gets a bit worse, what happens is, unknowingly, Simon lowers Joe over a cliff. The slope steepened. It was now much steeper, and that could only mean one thing. I was, an, I was approaching another drop. I screamed out a frantic warning, but he couldn't hear me. I shouted again as loud as I could, but the words were whipped away in the snow clouds. Then, abruptly, my feet were in space. I jerked on the rope and toppled over backwards, spinning in circles on my harness. The rope ran up to the lip, and I saw that I was still descending. The sight vanished as a heavy avalanche of powder poured over me. When it ceased, I realized I had stopped moving. Simon had managed to hold the impact of my body suddenly coming onto the rope. I was confused. I didn't understand what had happened except that I was hanging free in space. There was no chance of Simon hauling me up. It would have been extremely hard with the solid belay. Sitting in a snow seat, it would be suicidal to attempt it. Gradually, and with a sense of mounting dread, I began to get some perspective into what I was looking at. It was an awful long way down to the crevasse at the bottom of the cliff. And as it slowly dawned on me, I felt my stomach lurch with fear. There was at least a hundred feet of air below me. I kept staring at the drop, hoping to find I was mistaken. I realized that, far from being wrong, I had been conservative in my estimations. For a moment, I did nothing while my thoughts whirled and I tried to assess how things had changed. So he's gone off this cliff. He's hanging, dangling on his rope. His mate is up the hill. And all the snow seaters, as they dig out a wee thing in the snow, they sit down in it. And then they they belay off that, hoping that if something pulls them, their center of gravity is low enough into the snow that they don't get pulled out of the seat. He's hanging off the cliff. His mate, who's belaying him, has got this knot coming up in the rope. There's no way he can get lower him all the way down, because as soon as the knot comes to his belay device, that's going to grab it up. That's going to stop him going any further. So he's essentially just dangling in space. Now below him is a crevasse. So it's not like he's just going to fall off this cliff onto a big pile of snow. He's going to continue falling down into a, into a crevasse. So he's hanging on this rope for over an hour and a half in the dark, in the cold. Simon, who's in the snow seat up the top, holding on to him, he can't do anything. He's stuck just holding him. As soon as he moves... Both of them are going to go off the cliff essentially or keep falling down the cliff. Joe, on the end of the rope, he can't do anything. He can't reach the cliff face. He can't climb up. And also, remember, he's got a broken leg. So he's just dangling. The situation is pretty much unsurvivable. And this is what happens next. And so this is actually not Joe who's hanging on the end of the rope dangling. This is Simon who's up the top in his snow seat. I was shaking with cold. My grip on the rope kept easing despite my effort. The rope slowly edged down and the knot pressed against my right fist. I can't hold it. I can't stop it. The thought overwhelmed me. The snow slides and wind and the cold 
were forgotten. I was being pulled off. The seat moved beneath me. Remember, this is just a hole in the snow that he's sitting in. I slipped a few inches, stamping my feet deep into the slope, halting the movement. God, I had to do something. The knife. The thought came out of nowhere. Of course, the knife. Be quick. Come on, get on with it. The knife was in my sack. It took an age to get a hand to it. Fumbling at the catches on my rucksack, I could feel the snow slowly giving way beneath me. Panic threatened to swamp me. I felt in the sack, desperately searching for my knife. My hand closed around something smooth and I pulled it out. The red plastic handle slipped in my mitt and I nearly dropped it. I put it in my lap before tugging off my mitt with my teeth. I had already made the decision. There was no other option left to me. The metal blade stuck to my lips when I opened it with my teeth. I reached down to the rope and touched the blade to the rope. It needed no pressure. The taut rope exploded at a touch of the blade, and I flew backwards into the seat as the pulling strain vanished. I was shaking. I leaned back against the snow. I listened to a furious hammering in my temple as I tried to calm my breathing. Snow hissed over me in a torrent. I ignored it as it poured over my face and chest, washing across me and down after the cut rope and after Joe. I was alive, and for the moment that was all I could think about. Where Joe was, or whether he was alive, didn't concern me in the long silence after the cutting. His weight had gone from me. There was only the wind and the avalanches left to me. So he had to cut the rope. He cut the rope so he could survive because he was getting pulled down over the cliff as well. Now, Joe, on the other end of the rope, he's fallen. And it's quite unbelievable. So he didn't just fall down off the cliff onto a pile of snow at the bottom and break his other leg. No, he fell down and he fell into a crevasse. He fell into a crevasse and ended up landing on what's called a snow bridge where the snow piles up and it, and it caught him. And to cut a long story short, because the best I think is yet to come, he ends up abseiling down to the bottom of this crevasse. He, he just gets to the point where he can't get out of it. He can't go up, so he decides, I'm going to go down. He's got the rest of the rope that's been cut still attached to him. He thinks, I'm just going to abseil to the end of this rope. Hopefully, it's, there's something that I can stand on at the bottom. If there's not, I'm just going to abseil off the end of the rope and hopefully fall to my death, which would be the best option. Anyway, he abseils down this rope. Luckily, he reaches the floor of the crevasse before the rope runs out. And so now he's down at the bottom of this crevasse. And what he finds at the bottom is actually this, this sloping snow ramp up to the top of the crevasse. So he's actually able to crawl, hop, climb out of the crevasse up this snow bank. And so what he does is he stands up and he starts to go. The initial steps were clumsy and uncoordinated. I dug my ice axe deep into the snow above me and then hauled myself up with my arms. My knee throbbed painfully, harshly reminding me that I was a long way from getting out. Patterns. I remember how I had traversed to the coal with Simon. 
it seems so long ago. That's the way. Find a routine and stick to it. I was resting on my ice axe looking at my good leg buried in the snow. I tried lifting the injured leg up parallel with it and groaned as the knee crunched and refused to bend properly. Bracing myself on the axe, I made a convulsive hop on my good leg. A searing pain burst from my knee as my weight momentarily came onto it and then faded as the good leg found a foothold on the higher step. I shouted an obscenity which echoed comically around the chamber. Then I bent down to dig another two steps and repeat the pattern. Bend, hop, rest. Bend, hop, rest. Bend, hop, rest. The flares of pain became merged into the routine and I paid less attention to them, concentrating solely on the patterns. I was sweating profusely despite the cold. Agony and exertion blended into one and the time passed unannounced as I became absorbed with the patterns of hopping and digging. The snow roof brushed my helmet. I was directly beneath the small head-sized hole in the snow. The glare from the sun was blinding and when I looked down the chamber had disappeared into an inky blackness. I heaved my left leg into the new step I had cut and prepared to take another hop. If anyone had seen me emerge from the crevasse, they would have laughed. My head popped up through the snow roof and I stared gopher-like at the scene outside. I hauled my hammer from the crevasse and drove it into the snow outside. Then I hopped and rolled out of the yawning drop. I lay against the snow, numb with relief. I felt as if I had been fighting someone too strong for me for too long. Though the sun warmed through my back, I still shivered. The heavy weight of despair and fear which had been with me for so long in the ice chamber seemed to melt away in the sun. I lay inert on the snow with my face turned to the glacier below and my mind empty of thoughts. The relief washing through me left me light-headed and weak, as if I had used up the last reserve of energy within me. I didn't want to move and risk disturbing the contentment and peace of laying there motionless in the snow. Slowly it dawned on me that my new world, of all its warmth and beauty, was little better than the crevasse. I was 200 feet above the glacier and 6 miles from base camp. The tranquillity evaporated and the familiar tension returned. The crevasse had only been the starter. How foolish to have thought that I had done it, that I was safe. I stared at the distant moraines and the glimmers of light from the lake and felt crushed. It was too far, too much. I wasn't strong enough. I had no food, no water, nothing. And again, I felt the menace surrounding me. I almost believed that I wasn't going to be allowed to escape. Whatever I did would lead me to another barrier and another until I stopped and gave in. The black moraines and the glittering lake water in the distance blocked any hope of escape. As I gazed at the distant moraines, I knew that I must at least try. I would probably die out there amidst those boulders. The thought 
didn't alarm me. It seemed reasonable, matter of fact. That was how it was. I could aim for something, and if I died, well, that wasn't so surprising. But I wouldn't have just waited for it to happen. The horror of dying no longer affected me as it had in the crevasse. I now had a chance to confront it and struggle against it. It wasn't a bleak, dark terror anymore, just fact. Like my broken leg and frostbitten fingers. And I couldn't be afraid of things like that. My leg would hurt when I fell. And when I couldn't get up, I would die. So he finally drags himself out of this crevasse. He's sitting there. He looks down six miles from his base camp. Six miles from survival. If he doesn't get there before the other two who are back at base camp leave, then he's about three days back to the nearest civilization and he's essentially dead written off so he's got to get down six miles he better start crawling and he's not just crawling over snow first of all he's got to crawl through this crevasse infested glacier so he's crawling back and forth trying to find his way he really doesn't want to fall down another crevasse so he's zigzagging and then once he gets off the glacier, he's down onto what's called moraine. And glacial moraine is just a heap of rugged rocks, big rocks, small rocks, rough, just strewing everywhere that he's got to crawl through. I unrolled the yellow foam mat beside me on the snow. With the straps from my crampons, I buckled it tightly to my upper thigh and struggled with numb fingers to fasten the buckles. When I stood up and leant heavily on the boulder, my head spun with giddiness, and I gripped the rock harder to stop myself falling. The moment passed. There was no question of crawling. Walking was also out, so I would have to be hopping. In the first attempt, I fell flat on my face, cracking my forehead sharply on the edge of a boulder and twisting my knee viciously under me. I screamed. When the pain ebbed, I tried again. I held the axe in my right hand. At less than two feet in length, it made for a poor walking stick. And I was hunched over like an arthritic pensioner as I placed it carefully on the ground. With all my weight on the axe, I heaved the useless right leg forward. Bracing myself on the axe, I made a violent hop forward. It was too violent, and I swayed precariously, trying to stop myself toppling over onto my face again. I had made all of six inches forward progress. I tried again and fell heavily. The pain took longer to settle, and when I stood up, I could feel my knee burning hot beneath the splint. After covering ten yards, I had managed to perfect my hobbling technique. In those first ten yards, I fell at every other hop. At the end, I could hop twice as far and still stay upright. I remembered the patterns I had employed when traversing the ridge and climbing out of the crevasse, and concentrated on the same technique. I broke the hopping down into distinct actions and repeated them faithfully. Place the axe, lift, brace, hop. Place, lift, brace, hop. Place, lift, Brace hop. I started down the moraine at one o'clock. 
five and a half hours to go until dark. Place, lift, brace, hop. I needed water. I wasn't going to reach Bomb Alley. Place, lift, brace, hop. Place, lift, and on and on. I could hobble automatically and switch myself off. The falls brought me back each time, but they were unavoidable. My axe shaft would slip on a loose rock and send me tumbling halfway through the hop, or I would land on some scree and fall sideways onto the boulders. The flares of agony at each impact never diminished, but my recovery rate improved dramatically. I stopped screaming when I fell and found it made no difference. Screaming was for others to hear, and the moraines cared little for my protests. When two hours later I turned and looked at where I'd come, the glacier was a distant, dirty, white cliff, and my spirits rose at the tangible profits of the descent. The voice kept urging me on, place, lift, brace, hop, keep going, look how far you've gone, just do it, don't think about it, place, lift, brace, hop. Now it was just the patterns and the pain and water. Could I reach Bomb Alley tonight? It wasn't so far from here, 20 minutes walk, and that couldn't be so hard. And that was my mistake. I stopped timing landmarks and set my sights on Bomb Alley and the silver floods of icy melting water pouring into its flanks. When it became dark, I had no idea how far Bomb Alley was, nor did I know how far I had crawled. Now I staggered blind in the dark, obsessed with Bomb Alley. At 10 o'clock, I tripped and fell heavily on the rocks. I had fallen on almost every hop since the torch had failed three hours earlier and I knew in the back of my mind that I had made only a few hundred yards all that time. Now I couldn't stand up. I tried, but somehow I couldn't make enough effort to rise myself. There was an override stopping me. The voice prevailed. I shuffled into my sleeping bag and fell immediately to sleep. I wanted to move but I couldn't. Lifting my arm to shield the sun from my eyes required a deliberate struggle. I lay motionless, frightened at my weakness. If I could get water, I would have a chance. It would be just one chance. If I didn't reach camp that day, I would never do so. Will camp still be there? The question sprang to my mind for the first time. And with it came the dreaded feelings I had experienced in the night. Perhaps they'd gone. Simon must have been back for two days. More. This was the morning of his third day. There was no reason for him to stay once he had recovered his strength. I, I sat up suddenly without effort. I must reach camp today. I checked my watch. Eight o'clock. I had ten hours of daylight ahead of me. I hauled myself to my feet, pulled desperately at the boulder and wavered uncertainly on the verge of collapsing back onto the scree. My head whirled with the sudden change in position and for a moment I thought I was going to black out. 
When my balance returned, I straightened up and looked back to where I had come from yesterday. I was disappointed to find I could still see the top of the ice cliffs in the distance. Turning towards the lakes, I saw I was still a long way above the site of Bomb Alley. All that staggering in the dark had been for nothing. How stupid it had been to forget to keep checking my watch yesterday and how quickly I had lost any idea of time. Without timing each stage, I had drifted aimlessly with no sense of urgency. Today, it had to be different. I decided that four hours would be enough to reach Bomb Alley. Twelve noon was the deadline, and I intended to break those hours into short stages, each one carefully timed. I searched ahead for the first landmark, a tall pillar of red rock that stood out carefully above the sea of boulders. Half an hour to reach it, and then I would look for another. Finally, he gets to the lakes and he has a drink and he still has a wee way to go to camp. If they had gone, then what? The prospect terrified me. I knew the answer only too well. I couldn't believe that they would have left. It seemed inconceivable after all my efforts. Nothing could be that cruel. Surely a part of me hesitated, paralyzing any thought of moving. I didn't want to get there before dark. It would destroy me if I saw the tents were gone. The voice said, don't be a fool, hurry on, two hours light left. The riverbed was half a mile wide, strewn with rocks and pocketed with pools of icy melt water. Somewhere out in the darkness lay the river. I couldn't hear it for the stormy winds. The tents were snuggled on its far bank. But where was I? Was I moving towards the centre or curving back towards the moraine dam? Does anyone care? I kept shuffling along, bumping my feet against rocks, moaning at the spasms of pain, muttering questions to the darkness and hearing only the rush of the stormy wind in answer. How far were the tents? Perhaps I'd gone. I found myself moving again, unsure how long I had waited. If I waited, it would never come. A watch kettle never boils. What a silly saying. I cackled insanely at my private joke and kept on laughing long after I had forgotten the joke. When I checked my watch, I found it was morning, yet another day. A quarter to one in the morning, I felt the rough edge of a large boulder against my shoulder and pulled myself up until I could sit swaying on its top. Something told me that I was close. I stared through the darkness. It must be there. I could feel it. There was a high, sharp fecal smell gusting around me. I sniffed my mitts, flinching at the stench. It took a long time to sink in. Shit. Why am I sitting in shit? I slumped back on the boulder. I knew where I was, but seemed incapable of acting on it. I stared bleakly into the darkness. The cooking rock would be sticking up somewhere ahead of me, but where? Suddenly, flurries of snow whipped my face, and I raised my hand to protect myself. The sharp stench caught my nostrils, and my head suddenly cleared. All I had to do was shout. I sat up, 
yelled hoarsely into the darkness. The word came out, strangled and distorted. I sat dumbly, peering ahead, waiting. Perhaps I'd gone. The cold was taking me again. I raised my head and howled a name into the darkness. Simon! I wobbled unsteadily on the boulder, staring into the night. The pleading in my head had become hysterical when I heard a voice moan in a crackled whisper as if I was listening to someone else. Please be there. Please be there. You must be there. Come on, I know you're there. Help me, you bastard, help me. Snowflakes feathered against my face, and the wind tugged my clothes. The night remained black. Warm tears mingled with the cold, melted snow on my face. I wanted it to end. I felt destroyed. For the first time in many days, I had accepted I had finally come to the end of my strength. I needed someone else. The dark night storm was taking me, and I had no more will to resist. I let my head fall to my chest. It was too much for me. I just couldn't keep on. Too much of everything. Help me. The howl keened into the darkness. I thought at first it was an electric flash in my head, like the sudden blighting flashes which had fled after falling into the crevasse. It didn't flash. It kept on glowing, red and green, pulsing colours into the dark night. Something floated and glowed ahead of me, a semicircle of red and green hanging in the night. A spaceship? Stone me, I must be bad, seeing things now. Then muffled sounds, surprised sleepy sounds, and brighter lights flickering out of the colours. A spray of yellow light suddenly cut out from the colours in a wide cone. More sounds, voices, not my voices, other voices, the tents. They are still there. The thought paralysed me with shock. I toppled sideways off the boulder, landing in a crumpled heap on the rocky riverbed. Pain surged up my thigh, and I moaned. In an instant, I had changed into a feeble, sobbing figure, incapable of moving any other part of my body. I tried lifting my head from the rocks to look at the lights, but to no avail. Joe, is that you? Joe, Simon's voice sounded Cracked and strained, I shouted in reply, but nothing came out. I was sobbing and convulsing from the spasmodic heavings in my chest. Incoherent words were mumbled into the darkness. I turned my head to see the bobbing light approaching in a rush. There was a sound of stones rasping underfoot and someone shouting in a high-pitched voice of alarm, Over here! Over here! Then the light flared over me, and all I could see was the dazzle of the beam. Help me! Please help! I felt strong arms reach around my shoulders, pulling me up. Simon's face became apparently visible. So he gets back to the tent somehow, and he's sitting there on the rock, and he smells that, that smell, that fecal smell, that repungent smell. And he realises that he's sitting in the area that they'd been using as a toilet. And he knows he's close to the tent. He yells out, and finally, finally, someone comes and helps him after that epic ordeal. Nick, 
touching the void. What do you reckon? It's a it's a fascinating, I guess I have to say, movie because I've only seen the movie. I haven't read the book. Mm, uh, well, you've heard parts now, of it now, mate. I was going to say now now a recall of the book from you, um, but it always keeps bringing me back to the, the the mindset of the human body when the the will to survive and the will to live is probably stronger inside all of us than we would ever imagine mm. until we're in a situation um, like those guys. Um, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd do all my best I could to to survive and I'd do this and I'd do that if I was in that situation. Um, but throw yourself into a life and death situation, um, the body will survive a lot more than we think capable, you know. Some people think, oh, I survived the whole day without eating. Now it's dinner time, I'm going to eat. Um, you know, that's not survival. That's just, you know, the human body ticking along. Um, you know, mm. go, you know, we can go weeks and, and so forth without food as such. Um, and these these guys that are in the middle of these alpine environments, you know, strapping, what was it, a, a beard roll around the <laughs> Wrapping uh, his leg up and in his beard roll. And broken then, you know, leg. Yeah, broken leg and to then fall over, crack your head on a rock. But I'm going to, okay, I need to stand up and I need to keep going. Mm. And just yeah, it's a, it's a, an amazing tale of mental stamina. Yep. Yeah, the thing that really blew my mind was like how it just keeps getting worse for him. <laughs> like you break your leg and you're at nineteen thousand feet, and that's you know he thought he was gone. And they're like, no, we'll start lowering you down, and they, and that sort of goes pretty well for a while, and then all of a sudden he's hanging on the end of the rope, dangling over a cliff, uh, and at the bottom of it, like that would be bad enough, dangling over a cliff. But then to be dangling over a cliff and at the bottom of it there's a crevasse. <laughs> it's kind of like far out. Give me a break. And yeah. uh and then falling into the crevasse and still being alive, it's just like, man. Um and one thing that I really took from it was that one step at a time thing. And he and he refers to it as the patterns. Just focus on the patterns, the bend, the hop, the rest when he's climbing out of the crevasse. Bend, hop, rest, bend, hop, rest. That's all he focuses on. And then the pain and everything sort of just got merged into the routine. And then when he was coming down through the moraines, the, the place, lift, brace, hop, place his ice axe, lift his leg, brace, hop. And when it comes to a lot of endurance sports, that's all it is as well, mm. is, you know, push your pedal down and the other one pops up to the top and you push it down again. Pedal up, push down, pedal up, push down. And keep running through, you know, how we feel into a body check, nutrition, our hydration, our breathing, our rhythm, and just keep going through those mental patterns on breaking this pretty mammoth situation, whatever it is, 100-mile bike ride, down into little manageable chunks. And he talked about, as well, down through the moraines, timing timing different milestones i'm going to get to that rock and it's going to take this long when i get there i'm going to look for something else to to work towards as well breaking down that big big goal into into smaller chunks as well and it was a couple of years ago but i learned the like the meaning behind milestone do you know where it came from no, I wouldn't have a Well, clue. you're about to find out, mate. You're about to find out. So in the Roman times, there were miles, they, there were stones on the side of the roads. Every road leading into Rome had stones on the side of the road 
with the miles to Rome carved in them. And so it was literally how many miles back to Rome. Yeah. So if you were going back to Rome, you just break it down and you got your little milestones along the way. I just thought that was cool. Mm. Yeah, that's quite cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, just breaking breaking down this mammoth task that you've got and, you know, breaking it down to maybe the, to the first aid station or the first quarter of the race, the, the halfway mark, uh, the, you know, the, the second aid station, whatever it might be, so that you're just not trying to, you know, eat a whole elephant <laughs> at once. Yes. Yes, and I know we spoke about that, um, that we're saying, um, you know, how do, how do you eat an elephant? Um, you can only eat an elephant one chunk at a time. Um, and we spoke about that the other week. But for me, that, that came to me in a, in a work setting from a manager a few years back who, you know, I was, I was feeling like I had all this, like, sort of work pressure on me, snowed under, no matter what I could do, I couldn't kind of get out of it. I just kept feeling like I was kind of, you know, almost drowning, um, for want of a better phrase. And the manager was like, right, you, you can't do everything at once. You know, I'm trying to do everything I need to do at once. So you just got to chip off little bits at a time. You can only eat that elephant one piece at a time. Um, and it's such a really cool mantra for life in terms of take, you know, got a thousand things to do. You can only do one of them at a time. Uh, otherwise, you end up doing mm-hmm. 10 things and you do those 10 things pretty poorly. And so you have to go back and redo some of them at some point anyway. So one thing at a time. Um, and I think a point for me from that, that excerpt, and I guess from my memory of the movie, is the guy, and I forget his name, so you'd have to fill me in, who cuts the, cuts the rope. Simon. Simon, yep. who's hanging yeah, off yeah. when he's hanging off the crevasse. The, the mental, I guess, fortitude, I don't know if that's the right word for it, to, to be sitting there thinking, do I cut, do I not? Mm. You know, if I cut, it could be him, his death. If I don't cut, it could be my death. Mm. Um, and so I guess in relaying that to a, for a life sense in terms of you've, you've, you need a plan for life. Um, and again, the old mantra of you know, uh, failing to plan is like planning to fail. Mm. So if you've got a plan, okay, right, I know in my climbing if I'm hanging onto a rope and it goes slack, that means he's on the bottom and I have to trust that. Um, and if I do everything right and it ends in a disaster, then at least I've done the steps right. Mm, big time. Yeah, that's that's always stuck with me about that book. Yeah, yeah, and, and a couple of, like, with the whole cutting the rope thing as well, sometimes you've got to cut a few ropes to uh, be yeah. able to save yourself as well, isn't it? It's uh, hard. A lot of people say, you know, say yes to everything, and they all of a sudden they've got all these things and they can't do any of them, and they, you know, don't have time for what they wanted to do or whatever it might be. Sometimes you've got to cut away some of those ropes and, and hope for the best because, yeah, that's obviously this book is from Joe Simpson's point of view, the guy who got the rope cut on him and cutting a rope and climbing the climbing world is like the world's biggest sin. You know, <laughs> the rope's this lifeline between two people and there you are slashing it to pieces. But the it was a really interesting one in that they probably both would have died or yeah. potentially um, both of them gone over that cliff into the crevasse and who knows how they would have landed or whatever if it would have panned out the same two of them down there maybe alive I'm not sure but yeah it's um it's that choice in the moment I guess and it's, it's a bloody hard one to make and you can't really comment on it can you if you weren't <laughs> weren't there no no and I guess even it's it's hard thing for non-climbers not that I've ever been climbing myself but to, to mm. grasp how it would feel at that thought, 
to, you know, chopping the cable at the last minute. Yeah, yeah, like. yeah. Um, I mean, he was sitting, he's sitting there for an hour and a half, and he had frostbitten yeah. fingers, and, you know, he was just getting pulled down the mountain, essentially. His snow seat was collapsing, so there's not really much he could have done, but, yeah, it's incredible. Um, and, like, the, the thing is, like, he climbed out of the crevasse. He's got this broken leg, and he's six miles, which is how many k's is that? It's like about 10 k's isn't it it's about 10 yeah. kilometers from from base camp and and just imagine like in your next event you're feeling a little sorry for yourself legs are a little bit tired and you're and you're a bit knackered and you know just just think that well first of all at least my leg's not broken and i'm not going to have to crawl to the finish and no matter how bad it really gets you never ever going to be as bad as this situation that old joe simpson got himself into with a broken leg crawling you know down glacial moraine with a broken leg six miles back to his camp with no water and no food and that already been out for like four days climbing you know this unbelievably tough climb and the thing that really blew my mind and i didn't go into it in the book because it was blowing out in terms of time anyway but when he broke his leg, the only thing they had on had on them was a packet of Panadol. And Simon gave him the Panadol and said, here, take some of these. And then he got back to camp, and the strongest medications they had back at camp was codeine, or the equivalent of, of, of a codeine. And he still had to sit on a donkey for two days with a broken leg to get taken all the way back down to this village which then they had these big arguments with the police back there to try and ring a vehicle to come and pick them up. And luckily they had alcohol there as well, so I think he drank copious amounts to try and dull the pain as well. Finally gets to a hospital, though, and for two days he sat in hospital with no food, no pain medication, because they wouldn't do anything to him unless they had money up front even though he had medical insurance, they were like, no, nah, we're not doing anything. So it's just this ongoing thing of this, of pain. So next time you've got a, uh, you know, got a headache <laughs> and you can't find the Panadol, you know, just think, just think about old Joe Simpson, one, either sitting on a donkey for two days or sitting in hospital for two days with no pain medication with a broken leg that's going gangrene and he's got frostbitten hands and toes and the rest of it. And, and just how much more you are able to handle. And it's not that your body is able to handle it, because your body can handle it. It's the mind that is interpreting what's coming from the body. Eh? And you've got so much more to give, and you just need to, to harden up a little bit and, and get stuck into it. Because remember, hardening up's not about being physically violent or aggressive towards others, telling them to harden up. Uh, hardening up is about you developing an understanding that no matter how hard things get, you have more to give. No matter how wet, no matter how cold, tired, hungry, scared, frustrated or sore, whether that be during a race, during a training session, life in general, You've got more to give. And how do I know that? Well, I know that because the stories that we're covering show people just like you and me 
same physical capacity, same physical DNA. We're all people. The only things that's different is how they mentally face these situations. And if they can do it, then we can also do it. And we can see that by these challenging situations. So think about it and think about how you can reset your normal level of suffering. Because you can choose how you respond to things. We talked about it. Pain is inevitable. Nick in his 100-mile bike ride or when he's coming up to the contact epic, it's going to hurt. Pain is an inevitable, inevitable part of the process when it comes to endurance sport. However, the suffering of it or how you interpret it is the thing that changes and the thing that changes your experience with it. So I'd encourage you to think about that and think about how you could adjust things in your life to be a little bit harder, a little bit better. And that's the Harden Up Project for this week. Mate, thanks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening. Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. Make sure you check out the range of t-shirts we have over at the Exponential Performance Podcast store. And this includes the Harden Up t-shirts. All the profits from these will go straight back into the podcast directly to help the production of it. Or if you would like to make a small $1 donation, you can do so over at the exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash donate page. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart. We'll talk to you next week.